the Republicans to wake up. Is what the Republican Party right now is not led by conservatives. There's a population out there that has to be told the truth. Uh, we have to. Do it live! Now, from the left coast, it's another podcast edition of the Peter B. Collins Show. Peter B. is curious, opinionated, and relentless in pursuit of the truth like a honeybee drawn to pollen. He's an independent progressive, ready to sting Republicans and Democrats alike when they deserve it. After years in commercial radio, Peter B. welcomes you to this audio adventure in news and politics with no corporate filter. Listeners support this program, and you can help at PeterBCollins.com. Here's your humble host, Peter B. My thanks to monthly subscribers to the Peter B. Collins Show, including Susan Fellows, Joe Kells, an old pal of mine from Tiburon, California, and Robert Mayer, who stepped up to the highest voluntary subscription level. Thank you, Robert. If you'd like to help, go to my website at peterbcollins.com. Click on the tab that says you can help. Our voluntary subscriptions are as low as $5 a month, and every little bit helps. This is the first of a two-part podcast series about the Sabeel Conference, held March 5th and 6th in my backyard in Marin County, California. Activists who are concerned about the Palestinian population in the West Bank and Gaza gathered from all over the world. And in these two podcasts, you're going to hear a range of very powerful voices on this critical issue. Sabil is the Arabic word for the way. And Sabil is an international peace movement that was initiated by Palestinian Christians in the Holy Land. And Sabil seeks a just peace for Palestinians in Palestine and Israel. They promote the theological, moral, and legal principles set forth in the Jerusalem Sabil document. And you can find that on the web at fosna.org. That's FOSNA, which stands for Friends of Sabil in North America, FOSNA.org. And just after this conference broke up, news from the West Bank that the Palestine Liberation Organization, which is the Fatah wing of Palestinian governance, has agreed to a U.S.-brokered series of indirect talks with Israel. George Mitchell, former American senator, is brokering these talks. And this is a major concession by the Palestinians. And from what I can tell, there is no equal concession from the Israelis who continue to build illegal settlements in the West Bank in defiance of the Obama administration and many other world leaders and uh, concerned activists. So this is a slight thread of hope, and we'll see where it goes. And what you're about to hear is a range of voices covering various issues about Christian Zionists in the United States, about a new political action committee that will donate to members of the Senate and House here in the U.S. who support critical aims that would uh, help the Palestinian problem and the Palestinian people. You'll also hear Palestinian Omar Barghouti call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions 
And Anna Baltzer, who has appeared on our program several times in the past, is an eloquent American Jewish woman who has taken up the cause of the Palestinians, and she will talk about the hardships of daily life there under Israeli occupation and control. Our first conversation is with Dr. Hisham Ahmed. He is a professor of politics at St. Mary's College here in the San Francisco Bay Area. He was born in a Palestinian refugee camp, and he went on to become a Fulbright scholar at Bizaret University. He is a blind man, and he begins with a story about a night raid by Israeli soldiers that killed one of his dogs. One night in summer 2000, I was woken up on some screams, and it was from my dog, Bill. I didn't know what happened at the beginning, but then it turned out as the bullets uh, you know, were rattling all over that some Israeli soldiers were in the area, and for some reason that I'm not aware of, they shot him and he died on the spot. It, to me, at that moment, I felt completely helpless because I didn't know what to do, but even more than that, because I'm blind, I wondered at that moment as to what I would have done had Bill been Mandy, a guide dog I had a few years before that event. It was one of those really tough moments. And how prevalent are these kinds of events where without any warning or provocation the occupying Israeli soldiers descend on a, on a home in a hostile way? You know, unfortunately they happen really frequently and you can never expect when they might happen. Uh, the Israeli soldiers, the occupation army enjoys, you know, to really go on surprise raids. Uh, and it's not really only for security reasons. I mean, security might be a part of it, but the other part of it is basically to send constantly a message to the Palestinians that they are either occupation or in control. So they might raid your home, you might raid your workplace, they might raid your school. It has, you know, that has happened so many times when I was there. And truly, I mean, I hope that my kids will not have to linger under such awful circumstances I, as I myself and my you know, other family members had. I mean, I cannot tell you how many stories we had when you know, some members of my family almost died by bullets uh, as they were shot at, just uh, randomly, for no reason. I myself, although here, here I am, I'm an American citizen, more than once I was almost killed by the soldiers, by the occupation soldiers, really for no reason whatsoever that I can speak of. We know that during the uh, invasion of Gaza by Israeli forces at the end of 2008 that many civilians were killed, and it wasn't in the crossfire. Could you describe some of the events that you're aware of and the repudiation of the Goldstone Commission report by the U.S. Congress and, uh, in, in the same sense, the Obama administration? Right. Well, you know, in Palestine there is uh, obviously an occupation of the land by the Israeli occupation, but you know, I'm really sorry to say that the occupation of the mind by the Israeli occupation goes beyond Palestine, and some, sometimes it, it encompasses us here in the United States, including some members of Congress. I mean, Goldstone, uh, you know, he's a, uh, he's a Jewish judge, and uh, he definitely uh, did his utmost to be as objective as possible. 
and therefore to repudiate his report to me is an encouragement for the Israeli occupation and is a signal for the current uh, very conservative rightist Israeli government to do the same if not even more than they did in Gaza in late 2008. Uh, on many many occasions when I was working in Palestine teaching and uh, researching uh, most of the people who get uh, killed and who get uh, injured uh, are innocent people caught in the middle absolutely and the occupation often uses Palestinians as human shields to uh, uh, raid Palestinian buildings to uh, under the rubric of arresting some Palestinian activists uh, in the process many Palestinians get killed many Palestinians get wounded I know so many people so many Palestinians they ha who have been really badly injured and sometimes your heart your heart really is broken by the ferocity of the scenes by the ferocity of the anguish you know you see taking place and doctor to what extent do you believe that the Israelis were encouraged by the behavior of the United States and by the foreign policy framework of the Bush administration the terminology terrorism applied to almost any uh, opponent and also the idea of preemptive strikes you know regrettably it's um, uh, under the Bush administration the Sharon uh, government uh, was in the most privileged situation ever. I mean, since the time of Ben-Gurion, actually back in 1948. It was then under Bush that Sharon got the encouragement uh, to uh, liquidate the Palestinian legitimate, legitimate leadership led by Yasser Arafat to put Arafat under siege and then further uh, later on to uh, character assassinate him first and then to physically assassinate him through uh, blood poisoning as some Israeli reports actually have said. It was under the Bush administration that Sharon uh, uh, used all-out force against the Palestinians using F-16s, F-15s and uh, all sorts of uh, prohibited uh, weapons to really dealt so many blows to the Palestinians. I am sorry to say that the Israeli occupation is unleashed primarily because of the tacit consent and sometimes the direct encouragement by some U.S. officials. I'm really stunned when I see an Israeli official interviewed on the mainstream U.S. media. They are given an hour, let's say, on CNN, for example, Netanyahu or Ehud Barak, and they are never asked any genuine question whatsoever. They are never asked any critical question. Barack got by last Sunday on CNN with uh, Amanpour, uh, got by not answering s oh, most of her questions. I do not think even an American official can get, can get by not answering some questions. Certainly, no Palestinian official enjoys the same luxury of having an hour on the main uh, U.S. Uh, you know, media channels or networks. And if they were to enjoy a few minutes, uh, they are bombarded and showered with all sorts of questions, basically to make the, the interview work against them, not in their favor. So Israel, as a matter of fact, enjoys more privileges and is more sanctified in spite of its oppressive and repressive practices than the United States itself within the United States. And that, to be honest with you, uh, uh, you know, makes
makes me feel that uh, that uh, perhaps there is a fundamental transformation that needs to be done in the way American foreign policy is made. I mean, to equate terrorism with everything Palestinian or everything Arab uh, is a further encouragement, I believe, for radicalization in the region rather than the other way around. It's only, it's only inexperience and inarticulation, lack of knowledge of the Middle East on the part of some officials, which leads them, I believe, to unknowingly contribute to the furthering of radicalization by virtue of their assault on the dignity, on the liberty, on the uh, on the humanity of peoples in the region, including the people of Palestine. And Dr. Ahmed, uh, the case can be made that the term terrorism could aptly be applied to the Israeli massive use of lethal force in an asymmetrical fashion against largely unarmed civilian populations. Undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, and the U.S. officials know that. As a matter of fact, one can spend hours, you know, recounting how much U.S. officials know, how much information gets to them. They have the information, but they don't act on it. They don't act on it. In other words, the very nature of the occupation is terroristic in nature. Occupation cannot be sustained at all uh, by democratic means. It can only be sustained through brute force, through violence, through killing innocent people. And if this is not terrorism, one would wonder as to what it is. And I understood you to uh, put a little twist on the term checkpoint. Many Americans know that the Israelis have installed these security checkpoints. And uh, the other speaker who joined you today, Anna Baltzer, who I've talked with many times before, uh, pointed out that many of these checkpoints are between Palestinian towns. They are not uh, simply security perimeters for the Israeli uh, zones, uh, particularly in the West Bank. And you used the term choke point. Explain what you mean by that. You know, as a scholar, I would understand if the Israelis were to erect a checkpoint between an Israeli inhabited area and a Palestinian inhabited area for security reasons. I would really understand that. I mean, I would give them the benefit of the doubt. But based on my observations and the, observation, the observations of everyone who has experienced these choke points, and based on the accounts of many uh, military generals in the Israeli army, these choke points do completely different things from preserving security. For one thing, they do suffocate Palestinian life. They make Palestinian life hellish in every sense of the term because they separate Palestinian towns from Palestinian towns, by and large. There are some checkpoints that separate Israeli inhabited areas from Palestinian areas, but by and large, the majority of the choke points separate Palestinians from Palestinians. Secondly, it is at these choke points that Palestinians are humiliated. They are not searched. I mean, they are searched, but they are really humiliated during the search. They are, uh, they are ill-treated. They are beaten up. They are uh, often uh, made to collect garbage by the Israeli soldiers. They are uh, detained for hours long. Uh, you know, uh, long. And thirdly, it is at, this, at these choke points that many Palestinians become radicalized by the ferocity of the scenes they see. I know, uh, based on my research, that some of the uh, suicide bombers, uh, by looking at the statements they left, they said that what really triggered their actions was what they saw at those choke, choke, choke points, Palestinian women being prevented from crossing when they are pregnant to deliver, by 
Palestinian children dying on these choke points, by Palestinian teachers and university professors being humiliated in front of their students, by, uh, I mean, all kinds of awful scenes. So these choke points have absolutely nothing to do with security from my, you know, from my point of view. Add to that the last thing, is that the Israeli army knows quite well that any uh, perpetrator of violence, let's say from the Palestinian side, would not come to, to would not cross to Israel through these choke points. They would find back roads to do so. Maybe through the mountain, maybe God knows where. But they would not cross these choke points. So these choke points do not deter violence-driven individuals. To the contrary, they perpetuate violence and the tendency towards violence by the uh, oppressive practices the occupation imposes on the Palestinians there. And finally, Professor, uh, as a professor of politics and uh, someone here in California, I'd like to ask uh, your comment about the Republican Senate primary. There are three candidates uh, hoping to defeat Barbara Boxer in the fall, and Carly Fiorina, who has no political appearance, uh, experience. She is a former CEO of uh, Hewlett Packard, and she didn't really do a great job there. But she is challenging Tom Campbell, a former congressman and state senator here, who has a moderate position on the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. And she is trying to uh, draw him out and has been attacking him uh, for uh, various issues. But fundamentally, she made a, a, issued a press release the other day saying that Israel has made unprecedented, uh, unprecedented concessions uh, regarding settlements. Uh, what is your take on the use of uh, this dispute in the Senate race here in California? You know, every candidate who wants to win, who wants to win an election as local, uh, you know, state or uh, national in the United States would have to, to pay homage, okay, to Israel and would have to demonstrate, okay, their unwavering support uh, to Israel no matter what. And therefore, regrettably, since 1948 and the question of Palestine has been a tool in the hands of candidates running for elections in the U.S. and the victimization, the plight of the Palestinians is not even a concern for some of these candidates who compete with each other who wants to support the occupation more. So, uh, yes, I am not surprised that the question of Palestine will come up will come up again in the fall and it will come up again in the you know presidential elections and uh, that this has been the case and I think it is time for people to uh, recognize that their support of any given candidate does not have to depend at all on their support of Israel. Actually, to the contrary, if a candidate supports the occupation, we should not vote for them, whether locally, statewide, or nationally. Professor, thanks for talking with me today. My pleasure. We're with the Reverend Dr. Don Wagner. He's an associate professor of religion and Middle Eastern studies and a Presbyterian minister. And he's also executive director of the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at North Park University in Chicago. One of his books is Anxious for Armageddon. And you just gave a talk about the influence of evangelical Christians from the United States on the Zionist movement in Israel. Tell me the dimensions of this, because a lot of Americans really aren't aware of the influence that American Christians have. Well, it's actually, I would separate fundamentalist Christians from evangelical. Evangelical is a larger umbrella. <clears throat> fundamentalists are about 20, 25% of that. 
And uh, they have uh, most recently, um, really since 1970s, organized very effectively, primarily within the religious right of the Republican Party, but even beyond that through churches. And uh, they have become a major political movement that we call Christian Zionism. Um, you know, right now, uh, John Hagee, the Reverend John Hagee of Cornerstone Baptist, is the leader of Christians United for Israel. They have chapters in every state in the country. They are in complete alliance with the pro-Israel lobby, APAC, and others, uh, working hand in glove for a very aggressive right-wing um, Zionist uh, approach. They are actually against the peace process, anything that would lead to a two-state solution they call a compromise because God gave every inch of that land to the Jewish people and to Israel today. Now, I've never read Tim LaHaye's books, but uh, is your book, uh, uh, Anxious for Armageddon, kind of the antidote to the Left Behind series? Well, in a way, mine is just a very minor version. I wrote that for lay people, for evangelicals, um, and it's kind of a combination of a personal journey, then there's some uh, biblical analysis, then there's some historical analysis on the rise of Christian Zionism and how it uh, increased in the United States. Um, so the movement is not that strong in Israel, although they have institutions there, it's the United States. That is the big issue. It started in Britain, moved here in the late 19th century, took off after 1948, <clears throat> and just mushroomed under Ronald Reagan. Uh, Ronald Reagan himself was a Christian Zionist, and uh, you know, on many occasions he mentions Armageddon. He was uh, a very pro-Israel president, of most pro-Israel president until George Bush came along. So um, so this is a serious movement. It's political. It's extremely right-wing. Um, and it's, uh, it's really an anti-peace movement that uh, I, I find extremely dangerous. And I grew up in the movement. And, and what is the, the theory or the, the narrative of uh, Armageddon or the rapture as a, uh, a solution for the conflict between Israel and the Palestinians? Well, these folks believes that at the end of history, Jesus will return, and uh, Christians, the born-again Christians, on their terms, born-again, will be removed from history in an event called the rapture. Uh, by that time, the Antichrist, who is the devil incarnate, will have arisen, and he will mass many armies from around the world. They're always speculating who is the Antichrist. For many years it was the Soviet Union until that collapsed. Now today some say that it'll be um, China in alignment with militant Islam. They will come down and attack Israel. And Israel will be under siege for seven and a half years in the midst of it. Jesus will return and defeat the Antichrist and set up his millennial kingdom. Mm -hmm. So their theology, and in that process of the tribulation of that seven and a half years, two-thirds of all the Jews in the world will die. And then at the end, those who remain will either convert to Christ or go to hell. Mm -hmm. So the Jewish friends should look twice at this because it's a very anti-Semitic theology. 
But right now, it's convenient politically for the state of Israel and for the pro-Israel lobbies. How do they rationalize the suffering of the Palestinian people that is inflicted uh, intentionally by Israel? Well, they don't, they're not concerned about that. Because if your theology tells you God gave every inch of this land to the Jewish people in the modern state of Israel, so fulfillment of Bible prophecy, then whatever, whatever Israel has to do to defend itself and secure itself, uh, merits their support. Mm -hmm. So they're not at all concerned about the suffering of the Palestinians, mm. let alone Palestinian Christians. Yeah. And do they consider that, that basic question that's almost a cliche, uh, what would Jesus do? Oh yeah, but they interpret it in their own way. Yeah, this is a theology that is uh, very unusual. It's a selective reading of the Bible that strings together verses they interpret it as predictive prophecy, and they jump over the Beatitudes and much of the Gospels. Even they jump over elements of the uh, Torah and Leviticus that says you must treat the sojourner in your midst and the foreigner with respect. <laughs> and how about things like thou shalt not steal, confiscating land, stealing land, thou shalt not kill, um, no, it's all justified mm -hmm. in this uh, Christian Zionist project. And to what extent do you believe they're manipulated politically, or are they willing uh, participants in the extreme conservative Republican coalition? Oh yeah, they are. They are um, uh, an extremely important element. Uh, and I mean, you could find like uh, Sarah Palin who buys into the theology very clearly. Um, and people further to the right of her, Pat Robertson, who ran for president in the late 80s. Um, so yeah, they're willing partners and they, um, yeah, and, and uh, people like Dobson, James Dobson, focus on the family, who supports all of this rhetoric. So they're major players, Gary Bauer and others, and but they're in there fighting and lobbying for their position. And, uh, you know, they're in a bit decline right now, but uh, they won't go away. They're just beneath the surface. And uh, over 90% of religious broadcasting in this country is controlled by this type of theology. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it, it, it's very, very strong. And it's a global phenomenon. And Reverend Wagner, do you advocate uh, a conciliatory approach trying to reason with these people? Or do you think that politically we have to neutralize them? And, and I say that in the benign sense of the term. Yeah, yeah I'm committed to nonviolence, but I'm committed to resistance and conflict transformation. So where you can, sure, dialogue, um, you know, try to find ways to tell the truth, get them over there and let them see the Palestinian suffering, introduce them to Palestinian Christians and maybe a few Muslims on the side to say, hey, these are human beings who are suffering. Um, but for the most part, um, this is a closed mind. I found it very difficult even to deal with family members mm -hmm. uh, to debate. So often, you know, as Jesus said, you have to shake the dust from your shoes and move on. And just as an example, uh, Jan Schakowsky is a Democratic and progressive congresswoman from yeah. Evanston, the North Shore of Chicago. Right. She's my congresswoman. Have you ever had dialogue with her? Yes, I have. And can you get anywhere? Um, not on this issue. Nope. On most progressive issues, yes. 
but uh, she uh, she's scared to death of uh, justice for Palestine. And but she, she, knows, she, she knows better. She avoids it. Yeah. She avoids it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, unfortunately, you know, and that's true. I think for the majority of our elected officials. And you have a website that my listeners could uh, refer to. Tell us yeah. what that is. ChristianZionism.org. Mm-hmm. ChristianZionism.org. There's resources, articles, references to books, and sometimes commentary on recent events. Mm-hmm. Yep. Thank you for your work. Great. I really appreciate it. Thanks for the interview. Good to talk with yeah. you. I'm with Sama Adnan, who is the founder and executive director of NewPolicy.org, and you have started a political action committee to support candidates for the House and Senate who uh, really advocate for real peace in the Middle East and are not captive to the Israeli lobby. Tell us how this started. Well, um, we have long realized that there must be change on Capitol Hill so that we can change our foreign policy in the Middle East, a foreign policy that has been detrimental to America's own national interest. Uh, This is very obvious when you see how America has invaded different countries through the past decade that have nothing really to do with America's interest or America's long-term goals, except that they're all somewhat viewed as adversaries of Israel. Um, So we've decided to start uh, newpolicy.org newpolicy.org is a 501c4 advocacy organization that is affiliated with a sister organization called New Policy PAC. Uh, The political action committee arm of the New Policy family is responsible for raising funds uh, to fund congressional campaigns of congressmen and senators who support an end to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, who support an end to the Gaza siege, an end to Jewish settlements in the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, an end to the occupation and a just resolution of the conflict and the nuclear-free Middle East. Uh, We have had a very amazing response uh, from people across the country. We've started, uh, of course, the two organizations in Washington, D.C., where they would be lobbying, and we also have chapters now in New York City, uh, San Francisco, Chicago, Seattle, and this has only been in the last six months, and we've already raised about $50,000, and we definitely hope to raise about $500,000 in total by August of 2010 for the fall, so that we can really fund uh, the general elections of many uh, congressmen and senators who really want to speak out in the cause of peace and want to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or at least America's role in it, but are afraid to do so because of hardline pro-Israel PACs, mainly mm-hmm. supported by APAC. Now, is this limited to incumbents, or do you support challengers as well? Uh, initially, we were probably going to stay with incumbents, just because uh, when we are a small organization that doesn't have necessarily a lot of funding, we would like to make sure the people that we select do win especially when they have a proven track record of being Mm -hmm. pro-peace. Down the line, of course, as we raise more money and we have more uh, name recognition, we would love to get new people into Congress, people who would also speak for the cause of peace. Unfortunately, our political system is such that if you do not have money, you cannot... um, Uh, change what congressmen do and how they vote because congressmen are beholden to their contributors in a way that makes their campaigns uh, 
pretty much predetermined, right? And who wins and who loses. So now, we, now I understand your focus, and I'm not critical of it. Mm -hmm. But there are so few members of Congress who are really open-minded about these issues. Uh, the lopsided vote to, uh, uh, to try to discredit the Goldstone Commission report uh, is just one recent example. And we see uh, many Democrats, in particular, who are otherwise liberal and progressive, who line up in lockstep. Right. So have you identified just how many candidates there are who might qualify for your funding? Absolutely. Actually, you see a glass that is, uh, I don't know, 90% empty, and I see a glass that's 10% full. <laughs> it's more like less than that, probably. But uh, really what we've done is we've had a congressional scorecard uh, where we've scored congressmen on four major criteria, including if they have voted against the Gaza invasion, if they have voted uh, against the shelving of the Goldstone Report, in other words, if they voted mm -hmm. for the Goldstone Report, uh, if they have visited Gaza, which is a main indicator of sympathies with the Palestinians, or at least for a just resolution of the conflict, and finally, if they have written, if they've signed their name to the letter written to Barack Obama demanding an end to the Gaza siege. And we actually have 104 people who actually scored, mm -hmm. so that's not a bad start. And remember, just that letter had 54 signatories, which really indicates that there is a groundswell of people who are ready to speak out, even when there is no money right now going to these campaigns, right? And they have to fight against a very formidable challenger in the name of APEC. Mm -hmm. So once we make it available for them, we make these funds available for them, we will be surprised by how many people begin to speak out. Mm -hmm. This is a very obvious conflict right now and with very obvious ramifications for the United States. And we can no longer pretend as if the war on terror and Islamic terrorism has nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Mm -hmm. In fact, I would say they're extremely inextricably linked. And if we want to end Islamic terrorism and the war on terror and all the money that we're spending on it, we have to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which is one of the root causes for terrorism. Sama, you made a comment here at this uh, workshop that just concluded that uh, this new group in Washington called J Street is not liberal enough for you. And I applaud you for that because I've talked to them and I do appreciate that they are much more moderate than APAC and they're trying to build a kind of bridge to the center. But there really isn't a center in American politics on this issue. And I think you're on the right track because you really have to advocate for true peace and not some sort of compromise or accommodation. Right. I mean, <clears throat> the problem with J Street is that they're beholden to their very narrow constituency of liberal American Jews. Um, I think J Street is an admirable organization that is a natural ally of newpolicy.org. We have nothing against them. It's just that they have not come out forcefully enough. Go ahead. They have not come out forcefully enough. Unfortunately, they have opposed uh, the Goldstone Report, for example, which is a major setback. Uh, they have also uh, proposed that we should support sanctions on Iran, another uh, unfortunate you know, step from J Street. So well, It's a case where U.S. policy is an extension of Israeli policy, and I'm very uncomfortable with that. Absolutely, and the thing about it is J Street, um, I don't know if I want this to be on record because I don't want to completely alienate them, but I mean, they're 
we don't want necessarily APAC light. We want a real change from the current policies that we support. And a real change means that we actually are not pro-Israel nor pro-peace. Sorry, no pro-Palestinian, that we're only pro-peace. NewPolicy.org is a pro-peace organization that is neither pro-Israel nor pro-Palestinian. It doesn't act like it's either. And we actually are for America's national interest, which is the only interest that we should have any kind of allegiance to as American citizens. Sama Adnan, thanks for talking with me. Thank you. Here at the Sabil Conference in Marin County, California, a wide range of voices calling for peace and justice for the Palestinians are being heard. Omar Barghouti is an independent Palestinian researcher, commentator, and human rights activist. He's a founding member of the Palestinian Campaign for the Academic and Cultural Boycott of Israel and the Palestinian Civil Society Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions Campaign. Omar, a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Tell us what Americans can do with their economic power to draw attention to and to put pressure on the Israeli government and its American government supporters to bring true justice for the Palestinians. Um, I think uh, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, or BDS, uh, gives an empowering tool uh, to citizens, to institutions, to grassroots, uh, to civil society, uh, to act to end complicity. And that's a very important issue, because people say, why should I care? There's so many conflicts around the world. Why should I care about this particular one? The main reason why American citizens should care, not just a moral obligation to act against injustice, but also because it's American tax taxpayers' money that is funding our oppression. So Israel's colonial regime, Israel's apartheid system, uh, cannot be sustained without your tax money. So it's an obligation, double obligation, moral obligation and practical obligation because you're funding the occupation and apartheid uh, system. So I think BDS offers people a chance to act and act very effectively, act nonviolently, and act in a morally consistent manner to bring Israel to account and to end U.S. complicity and U.S. Uh, support for Israel's war crimes and illegal acts. Now, one of the targets has been the Caterpillar Bulldozer Company because they manufacture the huge machines that are hardened for military use, used to level Palestinian homes and the uh, orchards and uh, olive, olive groves. What other targets uh, would you suggest that Americans take a look at? Uh, one thing that's very important about the BDS movement is that it is context-sensitive. So it is not the same target everywhere. What we target in some parts of the U.S. may not be the same uh, useful targets in other places. And I think that's where we go to, uh, to the wisdom of local activists, because they know best what to target. Again, the BDS call is against Israel in general, all Israeli institutions because of their complicity, and international institutions that are profiting from our oppression. Uh, so that includes several American companies, not just Israeli companies. Uh, I think one uh, practical way that several U.S.-based uh, Palestinian solidarity groups are uh, recommending
recommending is pension funds. As many of the pension funds acting in the U.S. and investment funds are profiting from companies that are based in the occupied territories or supporting Israeli apartheid. So I think that's a very important issue to bring up. There's a campaign now that's uh, slowly coming together uh, against TIAA CREF, which is the huge pension fund for teachers, academics, and so on. Um, TIAA CREF is invested in some companies profiting from the occupation and, and Israeli apartheid. So there's a campaign that's rising against that to call upon it to divest from those uh, companies. But also at the institutional level, in, in the academy, for example, Hampshire College was the first to divest from six companies profiting from the occupation. There are many divestment campaigns that, that are student-led across the United States and that's extremely promising, a wonderful um, a campaign that can really bear fruit. I was active in the anti-apartheid movement in the South Africa apartheid uh, days, and I remember how effective our divestment uh, campaign was at Columbia University where I went to school. So I think that's something very important to promote uh, as something everyone can do. Faith groups, women's groups, student groups, unions, each one on their own can pick the targets that are practical and that are winnable. Because we're not in it to take revenge against anyone. We're not in it to make a point. We're in it to win, and we need to compile victories to end injustice. So the goal is ending injustice. And what is the status of the California Pension Fund PERS related to uh, these investments? I'm not aware of the details, uh, but I know the University of California students are now gearing towards a wide um, uh, state-based campaign to divest the, at least the UC system. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very, it's very important to bring the links here. At a time when students um, two days ago were striking because of 32% ridiculous hike in, in, in their fees, I think it's very important to make that connection. Can the U.S. afford, forget morality, can the U.S. afford <clears throat> billions and billions of dollars in U.S. military aid to Israel? Most of it comes to military companies in this country weapons manufacturers, which is, again, something that we have to act against. We have to shift the agenda in the U.S. from an agenda that's geared towards wars, hegemony, and imperial control, and benefiting the oil companies, weapons companies, and so on, to a social agenda, a social justice agenda, where uh, education will not become a privilege of the rich, it will be available to everyone, where health care will not be a privilege of the rich. Uh, again, in this country, you can see the infrastructure in shambles in, in many places in this country. And that's just a shame. The wealthiest country on earth has world, third world conditions in many of many parts, has real true poverty, has many children that have no health care. Uh, why at this time should they support, pay tax money to support the Israeli military in committing war crimes as they've done in Gaza, as the Goldstone report has shown? Well, and more recently, as an American taxpayer, Omar Barghouti, I have been offended that the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is directly assisting in the installation of this massive wall that goes way underground at the Egyptian border of Gaza. And this is slamming the gate as tight as possible on the incarceration and oppression of the people who live in Gaza. Yes, absolutely. And it's not that the U.S. is complicit in this. This is a U.S. plan to close off Gaza completely, to really turn it into a concentration camp. What 1.5 million Palestinians in Gaza are facing are conditions that are conducing slow 
slow death, no less. We're not talking about occupation and apartheid alone. Israel has crossed a threshold in Gaza. The siege that has been going on for years now is causing slow death. Patients that can be cured uh, if they get uh, treatment uh, in nearby hospitals are not allowed to cross and are dying. Hundreds of patients have died already because of um, uh, being denied health services. So I think we're facing a slow death situation. The pollution of the water supply, whereas 95% of the water supply in Gaza is polluted and totally contaminated, unfit for human consumption. What does this mean? It translates into babies uh, developing incurable diseases because of this. Very often cancer and other diseases uh, that are causing slow death. So an entire generation of Palestinians is being lost due to the siege and the world is watching. No one can say they don't know because not only do they know, they're funding it. Well, in addition, uh, 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 Mads, um, uh, Gilbert. Gilbert, thank you, the Norwegian medical doctor gave a presentation yesterday and uh, Operation Castellette uh, at the end of 2008 targeted over 200 school sites in Gaza. And it's hard to believe that those are all places where uh, armed fighters were, were being hidden and therefore were legitimate targets. The UN fact-finding mission led by Judge Richard Goldstone, who happens to be Jewish and who happens to be a Zionist, actually, uh, found that uh, a great majority of Israeli claims about armed sites were false. Schools were targeted, mosques were targeted, factories were targeted, water sanitation plants, sewage treatment plants, specifically uh, to, to apply a doctrine in the military, in the Israeli military, called the Dahia Doctrine, which calls for disproportionate force against the civilian population, destruction of civilian infrastructure in order to make the people suffer enough to stop the resistance. So this was not a coincidence. Disproportionate force and destruction of civil, civil infrastructure was very deliberate. Mm -hmm. Omar Bargudi, is there a website or other contact point that people can uh, connect with you on? Okay, the website of the BDS movement, the Palestinian BDS movement is bdsmovement.net and the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel is pacbi.org, which is P-A-C-B-I.org. Here in the U.S., there's the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation, which is an umbrella of hundreds of groups. Uh, many of them are doing BDS, so I suggest going to that website. Thank you very much for your work. Thank you. Anna Baltzer, it's great to see you again. How are you today? I'm feeling pretty good. It's yeah. a great conference here. Do you ever take a break from your activism on behalf of the Palestinian cause? Well, I take a break in, in the sense that I sort of diversify what I'm doing, and sometimes I'm on the road and educating, sometimes I'm networking and organizing, sometimes I'm in Palestine, but honestly, it's with me all the time. To me, it's, it's I can't separate who I am and my and life from Palestine because it's such a fundamental part of of um, of, of, of life <laughs> is justice and then the struggle and it's what gives me strength and inspires me as I as I live my life so I don't I don't want to uh, separate between who I am and uh, and the struggle for justice I've had the opportunity to talk to you several times before and hear you speak and one bit of feedback I'd like to give you is that every time I have contact with you I learn something new and you may feel 
that you're going through your PowerPoint and your slides <laughs> over and over again and that the same people are hearing the same points. But the new information that I got from your talk here at Sabil was about uh, particularly the way women are treated and their ID cards at these choke points, as uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Ahmed uh, uses the term. Uh, talk a little bit about that and how women are treated by the Israelis at these security points. So uh, oftentimes women and children are the are the ones most affected in, in times of conflict and actually Dr. Gilbert talked about how in Gaza they were disproportionately uh, traumatized and, and attacked. Um, so uh, one very striking example showing what's happening in the West Bank at these choke points or checkpoints is a story that I that I did of a woman who um, that I did an interview with her, a woman who was uh, who began to go into labor in the middle of the night. She was seven months pregnant with twins, and she arrived. Her husband drove her there frantically. They arrived. They wanted to get to the hospital, and there was this checkpoint between their village and the hospital. And the soldiers told them, look, uh, the checkpoint's closed between 7 p.m. and 7 a.m. Come back in the morning. And they said, we can't wait. You know, I'm in labor. And, and then they waited there hour after hour after hour, calling everybody they possibly could, pleading with the soldiers. The soldiers were adamant, no, you're Palestinian. You're not allowed to cross. And this woman began to go into labor at the checkpoint. Her two children were born alive in, in spite of being uh, premature, but they needed to get to an incubator in order to, to survive. And because they were prevented from going to the hospital, they both died. And this is just one of so many stories. More than 100 of these types of stories have happened in the, in the past uh, couple years of women actually in labor at checkpoints. And that's just one of so many different kinds of things that's happening in the occupation. And an important detail about these checkpoints or choke points is that they are often between Palestinian towns. It's not as if they were trying to get into Israel to deliver these twins. They were trying to get from one Palestinian town to another. Exactly. And I think oftentimes we we assume that they must be a way of preventing Palestinians from getting to Israelis. Absolutely not. This is between Palestinians and Palestinians, between Palestinians and their schools and their jobs and their hospitals and their livelihoods, their land, their families. And it really brings home the question about this this framework of security. You know, if you want to secure Israelis, why do you prevent Palestinians from going to visit their families in the next village over? How much does it have to do with security, and how much does it have to do with control and the and the gradual and oftentimes quick <laughs> breakdown of Palestinian civil society so that life becomes so unbearable that anybody who can leave does leave, and that, and that the, the society is supposed to sort of go into submission. And and, um, and the, the good news is that Palestinians are not submissive, that Palestinians are um, are, are an educated and in, in, and um, resilient group of people that in spite of all of this um, remain uh, so full of, of strength that it's precisely what inspires me and, and gives me hope for the future is the way that people in spite of this unbearable system um, rise rise from it uh, in, a, in an incredible nonviolent movement for justice. You gave an example to this group largely of uh, various religious uh, affiliations about uh, 
a trip from your home across the bridge uh, on the East Bay side here to come to church here it would take you about 30 minutes. And you made a comparison of how long it would take for uh, a family to go to church. Uh, a Christian, uh, uh, you know, a lot of people think that all Arabs are Muslims, but there are many Christians in Palestine. And when they want to go to church on Sunday, what's it like for them? Uh, imagine if on your way to church, you had to stop every half mile or so, get out of your car, show your ID cards to soldiers while people of a different religion or ethnicity from you were whizzing by. This is the reality. Instead of leaving your house, you know, half an hour before services, you'd have to leave your house four or five hours before services. Um, it's not, you know, it, people are separated from, from their places of worship, not only in terms of taking a long time to get to them, but take East Jerusalem, for example, where the majority now of Christians and Muslims are cut off from their holy sites and their places of worship, um, uh, Jerusalem being a holy city for, for all religions in the area. And through things like the wall and these checkpoints, Palestinians are cut off. Mm -hmm. And are there any other recent developments in terms of the uh, obstruction or humiliation of Palestinians by the Israeli security forces? Um, one, one example is the sort of institutionalization um, <laughs> One example is the sort of institutionalization of these checkpoints into what are called terminals. And so now going, uh, you know, it used to be that you got to a checkpoint and there was an 18-year-old kid shaking, you know, with his gun and, you know, very uh, timidly. And then it became that, that there were cages that you had to walk through if you're Palestinian and sort of herded through like cattle around these metal turnstiles. Now you go and it's replaced oftentimes with a huge sterile building. They're called terminals, kind of like an airport, it feels like. And uh, you see no, you don't see anybody. You don't see soldiers. You have uh, orders barked at you from uh, from speakers above where you have to simply obey. And you, there's no, there's not even any kind of human interaction. So it's a, it's, it's, it's a particularly dehumanizing, humiliating um, process that, that all Palestinians have to go through at these terminals. So you're treated like a maximum security prisoner. <laughs> Essentially. I, I had one experience that, um, that that illuminated a lot of these things for me. I was coming, um, I, I was, I was crossing what I thought would be one of the less extreme uh, checkpoints, and I found myself um, enclosed in a room waiting for, you know, a light to turn green to go into the next enclosed room. And over a period, it took me three hours to pass through. Over a period of three hours, I found myself transforming from, uh, you know, a, a good-natured, uh, you know, just reasonable person into into uh, an angry and, and and a crazy person. I was I was um, I was tearing at the walls. You know, I was I was yelling at them. I started singing. I I you know just doing anything to 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 not um, to not let them break me. And but but in some sense it did break me. Just that small experience it transformed me. And when you think about the fact that Palestinians have to go through so much worse, so many times a day, so many years of their life, they don't choose in the way that I do to go over there. Um, it's incredible to me that 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 Palestinians remain so so resilient. That don't they don't deteriorate in the way that that even I did. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and and are they using body scanners or other tech devices in these terminals? Sure. I mean, the, the they use X-rays. I don't honestly. I didn't even know what the technology was that I was going through. And it, it feels very human. You know, you're just you're this you're this. 
body that that they're that they're playing with. I had to take off my clothes. I was humiliated. I cried. I I I, I was filled. totally remove your clothes uh, except for my very undergarments. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah. And and that, I mean it's nothing compared to. I mean as a as a person of privilege over there, this was extremely rare that I would have to go through that. Um, and it just showed me what Palestinians. Um, it didn't even show me what Palestinians go through. It's a, it's a tiny fraction of what Palestinians go through, and even something like that was so traumatic for me. Yeah. And finally, Anna, the term apartheid has been demonized and rejected by uh, American supporters of Israel. And Jimmy Carter was roundly criticized and is still uh, kind of in the penalty box because he put it in the subtitle of a book. Um, but this is accurate. This is this is not fantasy. It's not uh, stretching the term, is it? No, not at all. Apartheid has a very clear definition in international law um, that includes the separation of, of peoples according to their ethnicity and their ethnic background, the separation into different living places, into uh, completely different legal systems, the prohibition of certain marriages. There's a whole list, and, and Israel's system essentially adheres to every single one of the, the things that make up what is apartheid. Um, and even in, in Israel's language, I mean, apartheid, apartness, you know, in, in the language, it is separation. Israel calls it the separation wall. It is the apartheid wall, even in their own words. Um, that's what that word means. And, and Israel's system of apartheid is pervasive not only in the occupied West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, but throughout Israel. Um, and there, there's so many, um, so many examples. But the, the basic idea that your rights um, would depend on your ethnicity and religion, um, this should really stick out to us. Segregated roads according to your religion. I mean, in many ways, Israel goes much further than South African apartheid ever did, and those that's that's something that's been said repeatedly by people like Nelson Mandela himself and the Archbishop Desmond Tutu. Yeah. Anna in the Middle East.com. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Anna Baltzer, always a pleasure. Thanks for your work. Likewise. We'll release part two of our special coverage of the Sabil Conference in our next podcast in the next few days, and I hope you will listen to all of these powerful voices calling for peace in the Middle East. Your comments, as always, are appreciated. Drop me an email, peter at peterbcollins.com, and share this with a friend. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling under